Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day, and we, we say with great joy, the Lord is my salvation. Who is like the Lord our God? You are strong, almighty, glorious. You are forgiving and kind and gracious. You cast our sins as far as away as the east is from the west. And so we praise you. Open now the scripture and help us, Lord, to make application by your power, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church, we are going through this psalm, Psalm 16, which is called in many places the Golden Psalm because it's such a powerful and, and glorious psalm. And my theme has been how to discover and maintain happiness. And this morning I want to go to verse 8 primarily and talk about how to experience joy in difficult times. And just uh, to be very honest with each other, this is a difficult time in the life of our country. We have a difficult time with this COVID-19. That's an ongoing reality. It's a difficult time in the area of race relations and the unrest in our cities. It's a difficult time in many areas. For me personally, just say that the Supreme Court decision this week uh, that opens the door to all types of interpretations of maleness and females and, and how that impacts institutions, including Christian schools and Christian colleges and churches, uh, is, is, was very unsettling to me. So these are difficult days. So the question is, how do we discover or affirm or find a footing of really happiness in difficult times? Listen to Psalm 16, verses 6 through 8. Verse 8 will be our focal point today. The psalmist says this. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot secure. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. I believe as you study this psalm that the linchpin or the key focus of this psalm is found in verse 1 where the scripture says this, preserve me, O God, for in you I have found refuge. And the word for preserve there means to guard, guide, protect, lead, watch over. It's a word that talks about being being protected and preserved. And, and, and as you think about this and this warrior king, David, says, Lord, as I, I look to you, I say that unless you preserve me, I cannot pull it off. I can't do it. And that's the tenor of the whole scripture. We, our, our cry is continuously, Lord, let me be empowered and preserved by you. For example, Romans chapter 8 and verse 13, the scripture says this, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So the thought is that, that if you put to death the deeds of the flesh by the power of the Holy Spirit, then you'll have human flourishing and joy and happiness. Then there's a sense of, sense of rightness and fulfillment. But if you live according to the fallen nature, you die. 
but it's got to be by the power of the Holy Spirit. That doesn't eradicate the fact that I've got to open the Bible and I've got to get on my knees and I've got to seek God, but it's got to be the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit that does it. Or Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, another well-known passage where Paul says, you've always obeyed now much more in my absence than when I'm with you. Therefore, he says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then verse 13 says this, for it is God who works in you both to will and to act according to his good pleasure. So he says, you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, knowing all the time. God is at work in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. So he says, once again, it's, it's all about the mercy of God poured into you. So if I'm, if I'm going to find happiness in good times, bad times, difficult seasons, indifferent seasons, I've got to be desperate for the presence of God in my life by the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus. I've got to see the, the horrid nature of sin and the destructive nature of sin and the, the breaking of God's peace, the breaking of shalom, the breaking of the goodness of God in my life. And, and, and I've got to be someone who, who absolutely, resolutely is transfixed by the beauty of Christ. There's a man named John Donne who lived in the 1600s and he was an Anglican priest and he wrote some incredible poems, uh, one of which was Death Be Not Proud that many of us memorized in grade school. But he was kind of another little couplet, a little sonnet, excuse me, entitled, Batter My Heart. And it's an incredible prayer. He says, Batter my heart, three-person God. But as yet, you knock, breathe, shine, and seek to mend. And then he goes on, he says this. Yet dearly I love you, and would be love fain, but I am betrothed to your enemy. So I, I deal with the devil, I deal with my flesh, I deal with the world. But then he says this, and it's on the overhead. Divorce me, untie or break that knot again. Take me to you, imprison me, for I accept you, enthrall me, never shall be free, nor ever chaste except you ravish me. He says, Lord, he says, Lord, unless I am enthralled by the presence and the power and the majesty and the goodness of all that you are in the face of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, I can't do it. You've got to enthrall me. It's not just do this and do that and do this. I've got to be enthralled with the beauty and the goodness and the greatness of Jesus. I have to be ravished or captured and taken to yourself. I've got to be enthralled by you. And so I've got to be desperate. I've got to see the ugliness of sin, and I've got to see the beauty of Jesus. One of the great hymns that we sing is, Come Thy Fount of Every Blessing. To my heart to sing thy praise. Streams of mercy never failing call for sound, songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet. So, fount of every blessing. And then another stanza says this. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. That, I believe, should be our daily prayer. Lord, unless... You bind my wandering heart to you with a chain that is stronger than anything else. 
I'm prone to wonder. I'm prone to forget. I'm prone to become lax. I'm prone to become lackadaisical. Therefore, tune my heart to sing your praise. Let me see your beauty and your goodness and your grace and experience the shalom and the mercy that you bring into my life. Lord, come. So, so church, admittedly, in my opinion, this is a, a difficult time for us. And we need to pursue joy in these difficult seasons. So I'm going to give you three points about how to pursue happiness in difficult times. I have, set, I have set the Lord before me. He is at my right hand, and because of that, I will not be shaken. So I set the Lord before, right hand, not shaken. I have set, set the Lord before me. He goes before me. The, the glory of the scripture is that God is a good and loving, kind, triune Lord who goes before us. Listen to these words. This is from John chapter 10. Jesus is talking about the fact that he's the good shepherd. He says this in verses three and four. To him, the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. He calls them by name, leads them out. When he has brought them out, all of his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. It's just a beautiful statement. The good shepherd Jesus calls us by name. He goes before us. He leads us out. He shepherds us. He clears the path for us. That we have set the Lord before us. Or the Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me, see, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the quiet waters. He restores my soul for his name's sake. So he makes me lie down, he leads me, he restores. He goes before me. I believe this. I, I believe that as we think about putting the Lord before us, which means that we look to him, which means that his word is our guide, that he is the final word, that everything we do is to be brought under the lordship of Jesus, that it is impossible to live with that type of mentality of desperation and seeking the Lord and setting him before us and being people who believe in the authority of the scripture. It's impossible to live with that posture and not be challenged and changed and moved and the contours of your life developed by the Holy Spirit. It's impossible that the Word of God should be changing us. I've said the Lord before me. So, so I'm going to take an application point in, in the present context of where we are and oh, on this point. So a few weeks ago, I mentioned that we should pray for racial reconciliation. And uh, a dear friend who's been a faithful, faithful friend and leader in this church has been in dialogue with me. And he says, you know, I, I understand that, but I have trouble getting my arms around. What, what does racial reconciliation look like? And I, I thought, you know, that, we, we throw the word around. Let me just, as you said the word before me, as we deal with the scripture, as we think about these things, what does it look like? And I'm going to mention three, maybe four things and then go to the second point. The first is this. To me, this is just me. This is nothing I've read or written or this is just me. I think racial reconciliation means that I 
frequently pray the prayer attributed to a man named Francis of Assisi, who died in 1225, that goes like this, Lord, may I seek to understand rather than be understood. I, I, I love to be understood. I read something the other day that said it's very difficult, it's very difficult for a, for a man to admit that he's wrong. And it's much more difficult for, for a good man to admit that he's never wrong. And I, I usually leave at the, the second, not the first place. Uh, I, I want to be understood. I want my point of view to be heard instead of trying to understand. So in, in this whole area, my, my, my first point of application is I will listen. I, I will listen to discordant voices. I'll listen to voices that aren't the echo chamber of what I'm thinking but I'll seek to understand rather than be understood. Let me give you an example. Three years ago, um, I was talking to Matt Reagan, who leads our campus outreach ministry. I love campus outreach. And they were going to go on their beach project. And he was going through what they're going to be doing, the beach project. And he said, on this particular day in June, June 19th, we're going to observe Juneteenth. Three years ago. And I said, never heard of it. What is that? And he very graciously told me that Juneteenth is the day in June annually that all people, especially African-Americans, celebrate the fact that they were released from slavery and they rejoice in the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution and it is a time for them to remember, reflect, and be glad. I've never heard of it. And then I did some research and in our own state, this, the House, the General Assembly of South Carolina in 2010 celebrated something codified in 2008. Let me just read two paragraphs. It says, whereas in support of South Carolina's annual Juneteenth celebration of Freedom Day, the House of Representatives recognizes the contributions of African Americans past, present, and future. Two more paragraphs. Whereas Americans of all colors, creeds, cultures, religions, and countries of origins share in a common love of freedom as well as the determination to protect their right to freedom through democratic institutions by which the tenets of liberty are guaranteed and protected. And whereas, according in 2008, the state of South Carolina passed a law designating June 19th of every year as Juneteenth celebration of human freedom, close quote, in order that these things might never be forgotten or taken for granted, we celebrate this day. South Carolina House of Representatives. I was unaware. And I just thought, I need to seek to understand in these areas of this time of racial tension to walk with friends who are different than me, especially my African-American friends, and especially my African-American brothers and sisters in Christ, number one. Number two, I must come to terms with the past and how the past impacts the present. That's where I've come. Uh, we, we confess the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed says we believe in the Holy Catholic Church, which means the universal church. And then it says, we believe in the communion of the saints, which means that we believe there's a mystical union of all believers across all of time that will be realized in heaven. But we affirm the ongoing reality of the body of Christ. And I think of my wing, which would be called the Reformation wing of the church. And this has Baptistic overlays. So I, 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 I acknowledge that. 
And, and as I acknowledge that, I've been reading, for example, I've been reading through, through the Bible, my Bible reading. I came to Nehemiah 9. Bear with me. Nehemiah 9 is an incredibly interesting passage. The children of Israel have come back from captivity. They're building the, the, the temple again, and they have this day of, of national celebration as God's called out people to remember the things of God. And, and it says that uh, they, they got together and they excluded everyone who was not a part of their covenant community. And they began to, to read the law. And it says they read the law for a quarter of a day. Well, we think probably 12 hours is the day, well, they consider day. So, so for three hours, they read the law. And they heard the demands of the law and how they've blown the demands of the law. And then it says for a third of the day, they prayed and wept and confessed their sin in sackcloth and ashes. Just listen to this verse two. And the Israelites separated themselves from all the foreigners and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And when you go through this passage, it's Nehemiah 9, they talk about what's happened in their history. And they go back to Abraham. Then they really come back to Moses. Moses was a thousand years before this day, a thousand years. And yet they're lamenting and grieving the failure of God's covenant community during these days. And they say things like this. They say, uh, God, you were gracious. You were kind. You led us. You gave us your provision. Uh, verse 16, but they and our forefathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you had performed among them, but they stiffened their neck. But, but you are a God who's ready to forgive and gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is our God, you forgave them. And it goes on, it says that but they, they Receive the promised land. He says, but, but nevertheless, verse 26, they were disobedient and they rebelled against you and they cast your law behind their backs and they killed your prophets. Therefore, you gave them up to the hands of their enemies and made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you forgave them. Verse 31, nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end to them, but you forgave them. And now this day, O Lord, our God, we resolve to walk before you. And I just thought, here are the people of God remembering that the past impacts the present. And as, as I read that, I just, I just thought about the Holy Catholic Church, and I thought about my little wing of it, and I thought about, and bear with me here, I thought about people that I love and esteem, and yet they were involved in a system that is unspeakable. People like Boyce and Broadus and Dabney and Thornwell, if you know church history. These are guys, their, their books are in my library. I love these men. I revere them. And yet, I need to come to terms with how that impacts today. And the way I respond, the way I think, the way I walk. The third thing I want to say before I make another application is that as I read the scripture and as I get on my face before God, brothers and sisters, we must be defined by our sameness and not our difference. That I'm glad to be an American. I'm very glad to have a well, English background, Scotch, Cherokee, everything. Uh, I'm a Southerner. I'm very glad that God gave me a mom and a dad that loved me tenaciously. And I'm glad for people to, I'm glad for that. But my identification is not primarily an American. It is not primarily a child of Martha and Conrad Brown. It is not uh, my zip code. It's not my 
alma mater. My primary identification is the cross of Jesus, where in the fullness of time, the eternal God bled and died for my sin. And I refuse to be defined by my differences when there's a sameness at the foot of the cross. Therefore, I will glory in the cross. I will understand what Paul says in Acts 17, 26, when he says that from one man and woman, God has made every tribe and nation and ethnicity. Therefore, there's no superiority or inferiority. There's equality in that regard, being made in the image of God. So here's my application. And I've, I've wrote, written extensively on this. And then on Thursday, one, one of my people I respect very much, Al Mohler, dealt with it on the briefing. Just go to Thursday's, the briefing by Al Mohler. He does a much better job because he has more time than I have here. That's only one reason he does a better job. But so in the present context, every time I pick up a newspaper or listen to anything, I hear the term black lives matter. And I can say black lives matter with every fiber of my being. So we affirm that black lives matter because all men and women are made in the image of God and they're worthy of respect and Christian love. Absolutely. No, that, yes, yes, yes. But hear me. But many people are saying, I want to be part of the movement. Black Lives Matter. And I don't think they've read the documents. The movement Black Lives Matter. I could never be part of that movement. Ever. Because the movement is basically anti-family. They talk about the family being a patriarchal, heteronormative, cisgender institution that needs to be eradicated. They are really happy Father's Day, by the way, guys. They're against fathers, really, and fathers. They are pro-LGBTQ without any distinctions or any, 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 any guideways. Uh, they, 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 they mock the values I hold dear. I, I, I can't do it. There is a statement called the Baptist Faith and Message. Article 15 says that in the spirit of Jesus, Christians should oppose racism and every form of greed and selfishness and vice and all forms of sexual immorality, including adultery, homosexuality, and pornography. We should work to provide for the orphaned, the needy, the abused, the aged, the helpless, and the sick. And he goes on and says this. In order to promote these ends, Christians should be ready to work with all men of goodwill and any good cause, always being careful to act in the spirit of love without compromising their loyalty to Christ and his truth. I believe that my, my commitment as a disciple of Jesus is to the reality of Christ and his word. And I can cooperate with all kinds of people who have all kinds of worldviews, who have no desire to understand, know, or, or, or appreciate the gospel if we're walking together for a common end. But if they start speaking against the reality of Christ and against the truth, I can't go there. I cannot compromise my obedience to Jesus even for a, a noble end. I hope you understand that. Therefore, I can never be involved in this movement. Now, I can say black lives matter with every fiber of my being, but not be part of the movement. It's interesting on Father's Day that, that um, as they talk about the patriarchal family and how the, that we should do away with the family and things like that, which is, I, I just, this is kind of an aside. I've got a couple of minutes. I'm not going to do one thing, so I'll do this. I just finished reading a book on Russian history, 1891 to 1991, that deals with the communist era. Very interesting. And I've read this time after time, but this book really deals with the fact that after the 1917 
communist revolution, when the communists came to power, they decided to do away with the titles of Mr. and Mrs. or father and mother. Everyone would just be called comrade. Yeah. Do away with all differences. We're going to have one happy utopian communist culture. And as they lived that out for about 10 years, 12 years, they saw chaos in their culture. They, they saw how the family was dismantled. They saw falling birth rates. They, they saw an, a, a growth in alcoholism because of no responsibility on the part of the men. And they just saw it was coming unglued. And so, as social engineers do who have no basis for truth, they can do a 180 and they can, they, they're always in, in motion. And so they, do, they said, no, we, we, we're going to redefine that. We now believe in the wonderful nature of the family. And we're going to say that marriage is very important. In fact, we're going to say that sexual morality between a husband and a wife is very, very important. And we're going to ask all leaders to follow this particular pattern, whether they did or not, you can guess. But anyway, this is what we're going to do. And we're going to say that children are very, very important. And let me say this on Father's Day. The family did not come hatched in a brain child of a group of people who were some type of maybe Western civilization group sitting in the Parthenon in Greece. The thought of the family being the basic building block of all society comes from the mind of the living God in the Garden of Eden. That God made us male and female. He gave man to woman and woman to man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and cling to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. So children is in the mind of God. So all these things. So we rejoice in that. I must walk in biblical fidelity. Said the Lord before me. Point two. Because he's at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. He's at my right hand. Now, in, in the day of the scripture, the person who stood at your right hand is the one who spoke in your defense. So not only does he say that God is my shepherd who goes before me, this is a beautiful, this is beautiful, but God is, is at my right hand and he is my defense, he's my covering, he's my strength, he's my savior. He's at my right hand. See, God is the one who defends us. God is the one who says, I am forgiven. God is the one who says, Your righteous, the righteousness of Jesus has been freely given to you. You go through the list of, of the seven deadly sins. Let me give them lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, envy, and pride. And I go through that, I can go through that list every day and say to a degree, well, most of them, yes, 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 sure, yeah, oh yeah. You, you go through that. And, and you, say, you say, what do I do? Well, you, this is what you do. You say, he is at my right hand, therefore I will not be shaken. He defends me. And so think of Romans 9 and Romans 8. And here, here's the relentless logic. It's the relentless logic of a man who for decades was a Pharisee pursuing self-righteousness. A man named Paul who for Year after year after year said, I've done this, I've done that, I've done this, I've done that. I am, as a Pharisee, I am faultless. There's nothing about my life, outwardly he was saying, that could bring any type of accusation against me. But Paul knew his heart. And so when he saw the greatness of the forgiveness of sin through the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, he was overwhelmed. 
And so he pins Romans 8, and he says this, and this is just the praise, hallelujah, glory part of this section. He talks about God's predestinating power and the fact that he's called and justified and glorified. Then he says this, what, verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who can bring any charge against God's elect? (laughs) It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, he was raised from the dead. He's at the right hand of God, who indeed is praying for us. And so, so the relentless logic of a man who was a rules-oriented, self-justifying, egocentric Pharisee to a guy who's just liberated under the reality of Jesus. What shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, would not also, also along with him graciously give us all things. And he's at the right hand interceding for us. It's incredible. There's a hymn that goes like this. Before the throne of God above, I have a great high priest, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is written on his hands. My name is graven on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. I know that while the resurrected Jesus is praying for me in heaven, no tongue can ever say, you don't belong here. You see, how do you go through difficult times? The Lord's before you. His word guides you. His presence surrounds you. And he's at your right hand. He is your counselor, your defense attorney, your encourager, the one who prays for you. He is almighty God. And his righteousness has been poured into your life. And then the psalmist says this. Therefore, I will not be shaken. Not shaken. In 1990, there was something that occurred in our country called the first Gulf War. What happened, there was a tyrant named Saddam Hussein. And Saddam Hussein, in order to control the oil flow out of the Middle East and to seize the wealth of a small, small country, took his tanks and went to Kuwait. Thus, controlling the overflow, controlling ruthlessly a government, and the Kuwaitis asked for help. And so the allies got together, and they decided that the situation was such of an immense interest regarding vital world interest because of the oil dependency and because of the basic rights of the Kuwaiti people that they would go there and they would get Hussein and his thugs out. And there's a leader in Great Britain, a woman who was prime minister for 11 years named Margaret Thatcher. And early in her tenure, when she dealt with certain labor unions, a Soviet newspaper, not as a compliment, referred to her as the Iron Lady. But that stuck. And she became known as the Iron Lady, which was rather a positive statement for most people. 
But in the midst of all this, we had a president named George H.W. Bush, the first Bush president. And as they were talking about going to Kuwait and the massive movement and what might happen, and thankfully the, the, the death toll was minimal compared to what we thought it might be, George H.W. Bush started to go, I'm, I'm not so sure, I, I, is there something else we can do? And in a conference with George Bush, the Iron Lady said this to him, and it's, I think, one of the finest lines ever. She says, remember, George, this is no time to go wobbly. What's interesting, the, the term here for I will not be shaken can be translated wobbly. If you look at a Hebrew dictionary, really this term means wobbly. And it means to go back and forth or to go forward and hem and haw. And, 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 and the psalmist says, you know, if, if you've got God before you and he's at your right hand, you've got his word, you've got his presence and his power, you will not be shaken. And I, I just, I look at this passage and I thank God for many men and women that I know, many in this church who every day get up unless there's a COVID-19, they go to work and they put in a hard day's work and they come home and they love the people around them in the name of Jesus and they honor Christ and they're faithful as stewards of the multiple grace of God that's been poured into their lives and they don't go wobbly, they're, they're fixed. And if you study the history of tyrants, the reason that tyrants really hate the church, whether it's in China today or Nazi Germany or any tyrant, is you can't control believers when they set the Lord before them. And when he's at their right hand, they don't go wobbly. They said, this is where we stand. We're not going to be shaken. We're not going to be moved. This is who we are. This is just what we're about. So brothers and sisters, in, 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 in doing this, don't go wobbly. A wobbly verse is 1 Corinthians 15, 58 that says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is never in vain. So what does the therefore refer to? The whole chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus came and he died on the cross for our sins. And he rose victorious from the grave. And he was seen by 500 men. And he ascended to the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And because of this, the grave has lost its power and death has lost its sting. But because Jesus is God who died on the cross for our sin, who rose victorious over death and who's coming again. Therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. So you don't go wobbly. How do you pursue happiness in a difficult time? Before, beside, therefore you're not wobbly. Heidelberg Catechism, question 28. written in the 1600s, it's a beautiful statement. Listen to this. Why does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and upholds them by his power? We can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence that our faithful God and Father that, that, that no creature shall separate us from his love, for all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. Wow. 
And with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father. How do you pursue joy in difficult times? Put the Lord before you, beside you, don't go wobbly. Let's pray. Lord, we are um, your people and the sheep of your pasture, and we, we thank you that uh, we can say, come thou fount of every blessing. Every blessing. Jesus, every blessing we have from the ability to feel the sunshine and to hear the sounds of nature, the voices of children, the singing of brothers and sisters, the to taste the goodness of food, all these things, to see, oh, to see. But really to experience in our lives the forgiveness of sin and the hope of heaven, you're the fount of every blessing. And because of that, tune our hearts, our, our wandering hearts, our hearts that are cold and hot and in between, tune our hearts to sing thy praise. Because streams of mercy never failing, never failing, never failing call for songs of loudest praise. Therefore, teach us some melodious sonnet, a song sung by flaming tongues above. So Lord, help us to worship. And as we worship, change us. And as we worship, let us go into our culture and, and, and seek to be men and women who want to understand before we're understood. To be men and women who, who understand that we live in a rich history that has very bleak episodes and very big blind spots. To, to be people who can embrace our heritage and love our freedoms, but always stand primarily under the cross of Christ. They would define us not by differences, but by our sameness in Jesus. So do that in us. Thank you that you plead for us today, Jesus. Your wounds for us shall plead. Thank you that our names are graven on your hand and written on your heart as your people. It's just so, so good. It's so good. It's so good. So good. So bless us, I pray in Jesus' name.